listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Well, last week while watching the Cowboys game, I was pleasantly surprised that the NFL is doing this push where they're running commercials trying to destigmatize mental health. Now, I thought it was so powerful watching some of these commercials. I mean, here are these guys at the pinnacle of their athletic ability, strong men talking about their weaknesses, talking about ways that they struggled really in, in I think, pretty transparent ways. You see, they were sharing uh, their, uh, their struggles with depression and their struggles with anxiety. Our own fearless leader, Dak Prescott, has, I think, really courageously talked about his own personal struggles as well as the struggles that he's had in his family. And I'm so thankful for these efforts because the reality is, is that humanity has always struggled with sadness and fear. It's always been there. All humans have struggled with sadness and struggled with, uh, with fear. Some of it just has to do with human nature. Some of it has to do with the circumstances of our lives and how we respond to all of that. The short of it is, is, is life is difficult. And when we walk through life, uh, it can be exhausting. It can be filled with burdens. Further, I, I think the, the, the pandemic has only exacerbated all of these fears and all of the, uh, all this sadness, right? In, in addition to people that we've lost, and some of us have lost those that we love dearly. In addition to all that, there's just all this uncertainty with the pandemic. Like there's uncertainty uh, regarding school and work and travel and even church. I say all that to say that we need uh, Jesus' high priestly ministry more than ever. We need a high priest to minister to us in fresh ways each and every day. We we need to learn to cope. We, We need to learn to capture our thoughts. We need to extend grace to ourselves and extend grace to others. Some of us need medicine. However, more than anything, and I think related to all those things, is that we need Jesus's high priestly ministry. That's what Hebrews 8, 1 to 7 is all about. It's all about Jesus's high priestly ministry and the blessing it is to have this heavenly high priest. I I know it's been a while since we've been in Hebrews. So let me uh, say a couple of contextual things about the book. Hebrews is written uh, because there's a problem going on. The problem is, is that people in this church were falling away from the faith. And hear me, people have always fallen away from the faith. It's not something new. It happens today. It happened back then. And the solution from the book of Hebrews is the title of our series, which is Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything that is tempting you to fall away. Jesus is better than all of it. And that's the, in in a nutshell, the solution to falling away is to believe that Jesus is better. I think the key verse in Hebrews is chapter two, verse one, which says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You see, Hebrews is this call to pay much closer attention to Christ. It's to take this deeper look at who Jesus is. It's to really get down into maybe some intricacies of theology. It's a, it's a, it's a call to go deep. And the reason is, is because the deeper we go, the more we understand about Christ, the greater joy we're going to find. We're going to see that Jesus, again, is better than anything that is tempting us to fall away. Donald Guthrie explains that the past has given away to better things. 
anything in our past, all these things that are behind us, even these things in the Old Testament, Jesus now offers this better way, something that is better. This means that Hebrews is meant to be like a joyous feast. You're supposed to go deep in some of these things, and it's supposed to bring you joy. I think it takes some maturity to really dive into Hebrews. This is not simplistic, okay? There's some complexity about Hebrews. So I think in that way, it's kind of a mature meal that leads to great joy. Now, before we get into Jesus as our heavenly high priest, there's a mention here in Hebrews chapter 8 about the covenant and then the covenant promises. And we need to understand that covenant theology is really the organizing principle of the Bible. If you want to really know how the Bible organizes itself, it's really around these covenants. And really, there's kind of two main covenants. There's a covenant of works, and then there's a covenant of grace. And I think the best way to understand it is, is uh, Adam and Eve, before they ate that fruit, were under this covenant of works. Now, we know they didn't keep the, well, that one thing that they were supposed to do. They didn't fulfill the covenant of works. But, but how did God respond in that moment? Did, did God give them what they deserved? No, he didn't, did he? He gave them mercy. He gave them grace. So from then on, we, God has given us mercy when we deserve judgment. That's the covenant of grace. And listen, there's all these smaller covenants, and there's nuance to all of those things. But, but really, the rest of the Scriptures and on into eternity, God gives us mercy when we deserve judgment. Today, we're going to go and do a deep dive into the person of Christ and His heavenly uh, priestly ministry, as well as how it relates to God's covenant promises. But, but as we go deep, I want you to keep the big picture in mind. And, and I want you to see that the good news is, is that when we deserve judgment, God gives us mercy. Jesus is our heavenly high priest. He uh, mediates this better covenant with better promises. And so we're supposed to believe that his covenant is a blessing. I'm going to ask you three questions today. And the first one is, do you turn to Jesus in your need? Look with me at Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, or Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Once again, the author of Hebrews returns to this theme of Jesus being our high priest. And more specifically, he's saying here that he's a better high priest. When you compare him to all the other earthly high priests in the, in the Old Testament, Jesus is a better high priest. He's eternally and infinitely better. His priesthood is superior in every way. He's a better high priest, and it's because he's in this better place. And so not his, his uh, uh, domain is not in the temple. He's not dwelling in the temple or in the tabernacle. He's in this better place. He's in heaven, and he has this better ministry, this better high priestly ministry than any of the earthly earthly priesthood. However, before we again dive into the weeds of some of this, I, I do want us to maintain a perspective here, and, and I'm really preaching to myself here. I'm a bit of a Bible nerd, okay? I just, I love all these weird things about the Bible. I, I love speculating about weird theoretical things and doctrines. I'm fascinated with the Nephilim. If you even know who that is, you're my people, okay? I'm, I, I'm, I'm with you on a debate between 1689 covenant theology and Westminster covenant theology. You know, I'm with you if you want to, you know, do all these uh, different speculative things. And, and, uh, and that's just kind of where I live. And as a result of that, 
I'm tempted on some of this to just kind of put it in all that theoretical speculative category, okay? Don't do that today. What I want you to see is, is that because Jesus is our heavenly high priest, it, it means that it can transform your spiritual life today. This isn't just irrelevant doctrine. No doctrine is really irrelevant. But, but this is something that can transform our spiritual lives if we give ourselves to it. That's where I want us to go. I want us to move from the theoretical, and we need to live there a bit, so that we can get to this transformative spiritual life that I think, frankly, is very beautiful. Hebrews 1 and 2 explains that Jesus is our heavenly high priest. Unlike the Old Testament priest, he's in the presence of the Father. This means that he ministers from a perspective as well as a position of power. He's in heaven, and and he's in this position of power, which is different than every other earthly priest. Further, he's seated in this place of honor. So he has this power, but he also has this prestige. He, he, He ministers to us from that prestige. Kent Hughes explains it this way. He says the precise point here is that Christ's priestly session in heaven is transcendently supreme and superior to the old worldly priesthood of Aaron. What a glorious thing. That Jesus is in heaven. He's ministering to us in ways that no earthly priest could. No one is exalted above our heavenly high priest. But what's a priest? Well, a priest at the end of the day is someone who ministers to, people's, uh, to people who are sinners and sufferers. That's what priests do. They minister to people who are sinners and sufferers. So priests come along and they support and care for God's people. Priests come along and they minister when someone has sinned. They care for someone when they've suffered. Therefore, when we look at Hebrews 8 here, it explains that Jesus is ministering to sinners and he's caring for sufferers. That's what's going on here in this, all this high priestly talk. So when we read this, I want you to hear, and, and frankly, I even want you to feel that Jesus cares for you. That's what it means that he's your high priest. He loves you. Jesus, who is in the presence of the Father in heaven, he's with you and he's for you. Jesus, who who is all-powerful, he also feels your pain and your suffering. Jesus, who's seated in this place of honor, this place of prestige, it's his heart's desire to care for you when you're hurting. Jesus, this better priest, yeah, he, he has been with you, and he's going to walk with you no matter what pain comes. That's the type of minister that we have. With a group of guys in the church, we're reading through Dane Ortland's book, uh, Gentle and Lowly. Ortland says it so well. Let me read two quotes of his. He says, Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We're never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, It was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. Amen? Amen. Just because it's good, let me give you one more quote. Not only can he alone pull us out of the hole of sin, but he alone desires to climb in and bear our burdens. Jesus is able to sympathize. He co-suffers with us. Do you turn to your heavenly high priest in your need? That's who he is. Do you turn to him in that need? Do you remember the scene from John 13 when Jesus washes his disciples' feet? What a a glorious moment, right? They needed to be cleaned, and Jesus' heart was to be the one who cleans them. Amen? That's his heart for his people. 
when you need to be cleaned, do you try to clean yourself or do you go to him in your time of need? Uh, John 13 opens uh, in verse one with this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then it goes into this scene of cleaning their feet. He does all of that, cleaning us, ministering to us because he loves us. That's the type of high priests we have. You see, Jesus loves to care for you. He loves to clean you. He loves to minister to you. That's his heart for you. You see, his ministry uh, to us is not just something he did when he was here on earth, but it's something he still does today from heaven. He's still in heaven. He's still ministering to you. And he's ministered to you in better ways than you can imagine. Do you turn to Jesus in your need? Well, the second question is, do you believe that Jesus is better? Look with me at verses, uh, verse 2 again all the way to verse 5. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That it's necessary for this priest also to, offer, to have something to offer. Now, if, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since, uh, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Here in verse 2, he's speaking about a tent. He's comparing Jesus is in heaven with the, with the tent or the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Heaven is better than the tabernacle. Okay, that, that's where he starts in this comparison. And where Jesus is, which is in heaven, is better than where any earthly priest is in the Old Testament in the tabernacle. Therefore, Jesus' ministry is better because where he is is better. You tracking with his logic here? Where he is is better, and thus his ministry is better. Further in verse 2, it highlights that Jesus is continuing his ministry. So his ministry didn't stop when he ascended up into heaven. It, it continues on. His work continues, but it's only from heaven. And he continues his ministry to us, but it's actually better than any Old Testament priest, any uh, of those uh, temple priests and tabernacle priests. His ministry is better. By comparison, I, I think we have great elders and great uh, pastors in this church. And I, and I know their heart. Their heart is to minister to you, to care for you, to love you. They want to be here for you. And as good as their ministry is, it doesn't touch the ministry of your heavenly high priest. Maybe another way to say it is if your hope is in one of those guys, brother, you're building your life on sandy ground. You have a better high priest. You see, in verse 3, it explains that Jesus offers gifts and sacrifices. But these gifts and sacrifices are so much better than any gift or sacrifice that any Old Testament priest or any current uh, pastor or elder could ever provide for you. Ephesians 4 talks about that, that, that uh, God has given Redeemer Church leaders to minister to you, to, to equip you, to provide gifts and sacrifices for you, but none of what they offer is as good as what Jesus offers. Let me just give you one passage just because it's good. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 says, blessed, uh, blessed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by. Again, if your ultimate hope is in some human, you're going to miss that comfort. 
He offers a comfort that no one else can. This one who's the author of all mercy. This one who's the creator of all kinds of comforts. This one who is able and willing to comfort you and mature you and mature you in your pain. When you have those needs, you have a comforter. You have a high priest who is there to minister to you. Verse 4 highlights one of the ways that he's better than, than all the earthly priests. The, the earthly priests are kind of like heartless bureaucrats. They're, they're checking boxes. None of us live back there, but I promise you, some of those priests in the Old Testament, they were going through the motions. I promise you they were. I promise you they were just clocking in and clocking out. God is different. You see, he ministers in a better way, meaning that his mercies are not just these, these uh, checking legalistic boxes, but they're coming from this loving heart. And Dane Ortland talks about the heart of God. He, he says that it's the central animating uh, center of who God is. It's the thing, if you will, of what gets him up in the morning. The thing that gets him up in the morning is to love you and to minister to you. He's with you and he's for you no matter what pain you're walking through. He's not checking in. He's not just clocking in and clocking out. This is his heart for you. This is his heart's desire for you is to care for you. However, the earthly priest and the tabernacle, as well as your pastors and your elders, listen, they're not fundamentally bad. Kind of doing the best they can, right? At the end of the day, really what they're doing is, as good as those things are, they're pointing to something that's ultimate. They're a shadow of something that's better. They're this thing that's kind of an incomplete resemblance. It's a humble attempt to point to something, but it really points to something better. As good as those things are, we have something better. For example, in the Old Testament, God dwelled with his people in the Holy of Holies. What a wonderful thing. When they were wandering in the wilderness, the, the tabernacle was in the middle, and God was dwelling with his people, and they camped all around it. What, what a glorious thing, right? But hear me, that doesn't touch what's coming in the end times. That doesn't touch the fact that you and I will get to walk and talk and dwell with God in that way. It, it's in a sense a return to the Garden of Eden, but only better. He offers something better. The question is, do you believe that Jesus is better? You see, if in your suffering you believe Jesus is better than anything else, then you will come to him when you need him. He calls you to come to me. When you come to him, you'll find a better priest, a better minister. The Frenchman uh, Aldolf Monod said it this way, it is to the man of sorrows that we go to seek consolation and peace knowing that he is well acquainted with weariness and that by approaching him, we will not only find the easing of our pains, but we will even see real blessing in them. This, our bitterest afflictions will be found in the end to be the most remarkable mercies. That's what it means to have a heavenly high priest. That's what we find when we go to him. We find these deep and eternal blessings. Jesus is our, Jesus' high priestly ministry is from heaven. It's not from a temporary tent. And he offers better gifts. He offers better sacrifices. Do you believe he's better? And my last question for you is, is, do you believe Jesus' promises are better? Look with me at verses 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ uh, has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been, no, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So not only was there a covenant of works in the garden, 
But, but there was also then these, uh, the, all these other covenants, these covenants of grace, these lesser covenants that fit under that. So for example, when we look back at the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, we, we, see the, we see the law, and that's part of God's covenant of grace. Hang with me for a second. Like that, that's, a, that's a gift of God. That's a good thing that he gave us, that, that, that we would uh, know the way that we should go. His law was a blessing. However, Galatians 3.11 says, Now it is evident that no man is justified before God, before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. The, the problem is, is the law was just never meant to ultimately mediate in an eternal way our relationship with God. It was lacking, if you will, in that way. It was never intended to do that. Now, some people tried to do it that way. And that really, frankly, led to why the law was so gracious in the first place. Why do we even have the law? Well, Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right there is the grace of the law. It highlights your need. It highlights that you need a mediator. You're not good enough to reach up to him. The list of the class rules were there, and you saw the ones that you couldn't keep. And it highlighted that you needed him. The law was grace, but it was also insufficient. It was also lacking in some way. That's why it needed to pass away, in a sense, to something better. One of its faults, and, and why it needed to go away, was because ultimately we needed someone to mediate for us. This term here, we needed a, a mediator. This term here is, is a business term. It means that we needed an arbit, arbitrator. We needed somebody to go between two parties. We needed someone uh, who could settle a dispute. Typically, we need a mediator uh, because we have, a, uh, we have an agreement or a contract that's not being fulfilled, right? So that's what we needed. We needed this go-between. We needed a mediator between us and God. He's the one who satisfied the debt. He's the one who paid what we couldn't pay. This is the gospel. This is Romans 6.23. We had this one who went between us and God. He was our great mediator. Jesus says all this by establishing a new covenant with better promises. The superior mediator enacted superior promises. Jeremiah prophesied about this in Jeremiah 31. Let me read 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that, was, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and in, in, in each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. And hear this, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. That's a better covenant. That's a glorious promise. You see, when uh, we see how glorious it is that, that our sins are forgiven once and for all, they don't have to go back over and over and over to the temple and sacrifice more and more blood. It was once and for all. All is made right, and then the Spirit comes and lives within us. That's a covenant that, that, that we can go to God with. That's a better covenant. And as a result, we understand that Jesus' ministry is more excellent, is what he says in verse 6. His promises are more excellent. 
My question is, do you believe his promises are better? Functionally, in the present tense, right now, with your greatest challenge, do you believe his promises are better? Do you believe it's better than anything the world has to offer? Jesus' high priestly ministry is more excellent because it's a better covenant with better promises. And the question is, do, do you believe his promises, uh, the, the, his promise to be with you and to be for you no matter what comes? Do you believe that? Think of the thing that you are suffering with the most in your life. Do you believe that he's with you and he's for you in that suffering? Do you believe that he's working good in your trial? Do you believe that you can come to him and find comfort when you blow it again? Can you continue to go back to him? Is he still there no matter what? Do you believe that you can come to him and find rest and uh, find rest when you are weary? Do you believe his promises are better? At the end of the day, Hebrews 8, 1 to 7 is a call to believe in his covenant for eternal life and to, and to believe his promises for every day of your life. It's to believe his covenants for your eternal life and then his promises for every day of your life after that. You see, believing that Jesus is your mediator, that's how you're born again. That's how you're once and for all made right with the Lord. If you believe that he's your go-between, you, you, you quit toying around with trying to be your own go-between. When you quit trying to say, okay, I'm going to get right, I'm going to clean myself up, and then I'm going to come to God. When you, when you forget all that nonsense and you say, I'm not good enough. I need somebody else. I need somebody else to pay this. I need to turn from this and follow him and trust in him. That's how you're born again. Now, let me tell you something. Every time our elders get together, they pray for you on that point right there. They pray every time we get together that people will walk into this church, hear that message, and be converted. Let me say it this way. There is nothing more that Mike Cromus and Andy Crenshaw loves more than to tell people that message right there. Don't waste this moment. Don't walk out of this room unless you've talked to one of those guys and you know for sure that you're right with God. Don't waste any of this. God has brought you here for a reason. And there's nothing more that those guys want to do than to pray with you and to explain what that means and to walk you through that so that you can be right with your heavenly father. They want to tell you about your mediator. However, what about every day after that day? Maybe you can point to a day where, okay, I trusted in Jesus. I trusted in his promises. I was converted. However, what about every day after that? Are you weary and overwhelmed today? Are you struggling to believe again that his promises are better? The good news of Hebrews 8 is that we still have a heavenly high priest. He's still ministering. He's still pouring out his grace upon you. He's still covering you and washing you and cleansing you. And he's not done washing your feet. He's not done cleaning you up. He's still ministering his gifts He's still pouring those out on you. His ministry is better than any ministry, than any uh, Old Testament priest, any current pastor can offer today. His ministry is more excellent, and it's based upon his promises. So he says, come to me. He continues to call you to come to him. And when you come to him, he continues to uh, pour out his grace upon you. You continue to find rest. You continue to find peace when you come to him. Today, right now, believe that his promises are better. Some of you know who Charles Spurgeon was. He was somebody who was, uh, knew intimately about Jesus' priestly ministry. 
That's because Charles Spurgeon suffered deep, dark fits of depression. Spurgeon is one of the most fascinating figures from church history. He's probably one of the greatest pastors and preachers and evangelists that church history has ever seen. He, he was just phenomenal. He was a Baptist pastor in London during the mid to late 1800s, and uh, he, he was a true genius. And he just had boundless energy. And before microphones and speakers, he would just preach to thousands. He had this great booming preaching voice. He, he was just uniquely gifted in amazing ways. However, he also suffered seasons of deep sadness. His wife uh, commented about his moments of melancholy, as she called them. And she, she wrote this about her, her husband's depression. My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter. And we sometimes fear that he would never preach again. In the fall of 1856, Charles and Susanna, they, they were just in a sweet season of life. They had just had their first children, two twin boys. The, the ministry there in London was thriving. They were having to build a new building. Thousands of people were coming and being converted. And then on Sunday, October 19th, 1856, during the worship service, a prankster yelled fire in the middle of the service. Panic ensued. People were climbing over rails, going to the door, stampeding over people. Seven people were stampeded to death. It just put him right over the edge. This young pastor Things seemed to be going so well. Just this awful tragedy happened. The London media, they were looking for ways to take down Spurgeon. And man, they jumped on him on this. They, they blamed him for it. And he took it to heart. And again, it just, just about put him over the edge. Here, here's what he wrote about it. The mind can descend far lower than the body. For in it, there are bound, bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more. But the soul... The soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. He knew sadness. He had this horrific thing happen, and he knew the sadness that followed. Maybe you can relate. But maybe some of you, as you think about your sadness and your fears, maybe you can't point to something. Spurgeon had a similar experience. There were times that he was just overwhelmed by pain, but there wasn't this painful incident that he could point to. He wrote this about that type of sadness. He said, quite involuntarily, unhappiness of mind, depression of spirit, and sorrow of heart will come upon you. You may be without any real grief and yet may become among the most unhappy of men because for the time your body has conquered your soul. When Spurgeon was there, he leaned on the promises of God to carry him through. These glorious covenant promises of God is how he got through those seasons. Let, let me give you just three practical ways of, of what that looked like in his life. First off, he had this habit of, of posting little notes around his house and around his study. And they were just little notes about the promises of God that he could just see throughout the day and be reminded of God's good promises. One of his favorite was Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He also this, had this habit that in his coat jacket, he always had this little book called Precious Promises. And, and really all it was was this listing of scriptures, these glorious promises of God. And, and just in these fits of depression or fear or melancholy or sadness, he would pull out that book and just go over those better promises of God. One verse that he liked was Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He, he would also pray, and, and not the polite church prayers, right? The, the desperate pleading prayers, pleading for the promises of God. He wrote this about those types of prayers. He says, I, I, I like in my time of trouble to find a promise which exactly fits my needs. And then I put my finger on it and I say, Lord, this is thy word. I beseech thee to prove that it is so by carrying it out of my case. I believe that this is thine own writing and I pray thee to make it good, to, to make it good of my faith. He would trust the Lord in those moments. Sometimes those prayers were simply, Father, help me. Father, rescue me. That's the type of prayers that he had. Brothers and sisters, we're all going to go through those seasons of melancholy, those seasons of depression, those seasons of fear. We, we live in a broken world. We ourselves are fallen. But Spurgeon teaches us that, that we have a heavenly high priest who ministers to us over and over and over and over again. His promises remain. Believing he's better and his promises are better. That's how we survive those seasons. When Spurgeon would slide into depression, his way out was to believe the promises of God are better. Jesus is our heavenly high priest. He mediates a better covenant with better promises. This means that he is there for you. He's there with you. His promises are true. His promises are better than anything this world has to offer. Brothers and sisters, may we be a church that believes in his covenant for eternal life and his promises for every day of our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for just the reminder from your word of your good covenant promises. Thank you that you are our great high priest. Thank you that it's not up to us, but it's up to you. May we be a people in those moments of fear and in those moments of sadness. May we be a people that goes back to the promises. And may you pull us out and up out of those moments, seeing you in all your glory, filling us with hope for the promises that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.